Welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a strategy to decarbonize and revitalize our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Senior Director of Electrification with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, Making Energy Efficiency and Electrification Programs Work for People. The Inflation Reduction Act has billions of dollars available to help consumers and property owners upgrade homes and buildings over the next 10 years, which will support the mutual goals of saving people money on their energy bills, reducing energy burdens, improving public health, and reducing emissions. In addition to the new residential and commercial tax credits, there are new high-energy efficiency electric home rebate programs, which is $4.5 billion for low-to-moderate-income households, multifamily housing, all to electrify with the most efficient equipment. There's also the home energy performance-based whole house rebates, which is $4.3 billion for efficiency upgrades for all households, including low to moderate income. And there's another $1 billion available for improving the efficiency and climate resilience of affordable housing, among others. There's so much money flowing to energy efficiency and electrification, and now is a really exciting time. Now, all of this funding is going to be allocated from the federal government to state energy offices, tribal governments, and affordable housing agencies. And they'll all be tasked with designing and implementing successful rebate and incentive programs to benefit people. As such, right now is a great time for these folks to be thinking about how to design and implement the most effective programs, learn from what's worked elsewhere, and draw on existing research to inform program design. Fortunately, while this funding is new, the world of energy efficiency and electrification programs is well-established, and there's a growing body of research that can help inform successful approaches and strategies, including how to ensure that low-to-moderate-income households and underserved communities really benefit from new funding and new programs. With me today to share their learnings and insights from new research and successful programs across the country are three experts. First, we have Dr. Yunus Kankabwala, a senior data scientist with PSE Healthy Energy, which is a nonprofit research institute dedicated to generating science-based energy and climate solutions that protect public health and the environment. And uh, he holds a doctorate in applied physics and specializes in developing sophisticated data-driven models to guide decision-making and policy. So welcome to the show, Yunus. Thanks for having me. And next, we have Dr. Arjun Makajani, a president of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, which is an organization that provides understandable and accurate scientific and technical information on energy and environmental issues in order to bring scientific excellence to public policy issues. He has a long career and background in nuclear engineering and nuclear energy, as well as energy conservation and carbon-free energy policy. Welcome to the show, Arjun. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. And finally, but not least, we have Dana Fisher. He's the Director of Regulatory Strategy at Mitsubishi Electric US, which is a company that produces all manner of technologies and innovations, including high-efficiency heat pumps. And Dana has had a fascinating career uh, across the board in weatherization, heating systems, heat pumps, as well as municipal finance, solar thermal, and ultra-high-purity manufacturing, among other things. Welcome to the show, Dana. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, it is a pleasure to have you all on the podcast, and I am really looking forward to this conversation today. 
So we're going to start first with uh, Eunice and Arjun. You both recently collaborated on some research and I want to dig into that research and the findings. Uh, So Eunice, I'll start with you first and have you tell me a little bit more about your role at PSE Healthy Energy and what inspired you to pivot from your science and physics background to energy policy and public health work? Sure. Um, I guess energy is complicated. And so uh, throughout my PhD in physics, which I finished not too long ago, I did a lot of study in complex systems and I did machine learning and data science and statistical modeling. And it turns out those are really useful skills when looking at the holistic uh, study of energy and decarbonization and policy and all the many costs and benefits of all the technologies and all the trade-offs that go uh, into transitioning to a greener energy infrastructure such as affordability and public health, which we'll be talking about a bit today. So it was surprisingly a seamless transition. If anybody out there, if there's any data scientists who want to do some good work, uh, we are often hiring and could use some help doing this uh, sophisticated modeling. That's great. Yeah, we uh, we have a lot of uh, similar background folks working at Energy Innovation, so there's definitely great opportunities for folks to to pivot to climate and policy uh, even if you're coming from a science background. Um, Arjun, please tell us a little bit more about yourself and the Institute for Energy and Environment and what led you to this work after specializing mostly in nuclear engineering and nuclear energy. Well, I did my doctorate in nuclear fusion at Berkeley long ago, starting in 70. At that time, it was the idea that we'd need a thousand nuclear reactors in the next 30 years to fulfill electricity requirements. And I asked the best and the brightest that were assembled there in Berkeley uh, why we needed a thousand reactors. You know, there's a lot of mining, there's a lot of pollution. Why, why not more? Why not less? And nobody knew. So I kind of did a parallel PhD, which was the first energy efficiency assessment that was done uh, in collaboration with my advisor for a two-credit seminar while I finished my doctorate. I never, I never did work in nuclear fusion because by the time I finished my doctorate, the energy crisis was around the corner and there was a lot of demand for people who knew about efficiency, but not a lot of supply. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I've worked in the energy area since. And uh, in the specific instance, uh, Sarah, you know, when I, I did a long project on renewable energy in Maryland focused on including energy justice, And I was just shocked by how many people struggled to pay their utility bills and get their electricity cut off. And I kind of determined that I would advocate for both energy justice and renewable energy. Absolutely. Well, that's a great segue to the work that Eunice and yourself have collaborated on. Uh, the, uh, the report is called Energy Affordability in Maryland, Integrating Public Health equity, and climate. Uh, Can you tell our listeners about the focus of the study and why you undertook the study? And Arjun, maybe I'll start with you and then uh, get any thoughts from Eunice on that. Yeah, we undertook the study because um, energy policy has been a lot in silos. We look at energy affordability as one thing, you know, poor people are suffering, they can't pay their bills, their electricity gets cut off, they may, you know, lose their homes and get evicted as a result. And then on the other side, we talk about renewable energy and decarbonization. And it's not widely recognized 
that even though on average renewable energy may be cheaper, things may get worse for low-income households as we're decarbonizing. The price of natural gas may go up, the cost of natural gas may go up, for example, and that it and it could reduce the need for energy assistance and make everybody better off if we integrated the two things. So Eunice and I had collaborated on a similar study before, and I had some money to do, um, my institute did, uh, to do a study on Maryland. And so uh, we decided to collaborate again and do uh, a really thorough, full study on integrating uh, the energy transition decarbonization with energy justice. That's great. And, and Eunice, anything to add from your end? What brought PSE Healthy Energy to the table? Yeah, we are often looking at affordability and trying to find ways to raise the issue of people struggling with their energy bills, but do it in an actionable way so that people can quantify the extent of the problem and also how different solutions can reduce the problem. So we uh, develop metrics to say, how many dollars are people spending beyond their energy bills? And what if we did this instead? How could we take all that? How could we make it so that people don't have to pay these extra unnecessarily high energy bills? And how much would that actually save us in the long run? Which is not often incorporated into the plans that people are making and by utilities or by the states. Uh, and we want to make that as easy and uh, loud as possible for people to act on. Yeah, that's great. And just for the listener's benefit, uh, the term energy burden is widely used among those uh, focusing on energy affordability, but uh, it may not be a term that all folks are familiar with. So uh, perhaps you can define energy burden and then uh, would love to hear what the top findings of the report were. And I'll start with you, Eunice. Uh, So the energy cost burden is just imagine people have a certain budget. You have to pay for your rent, your mortgage, your insurance. A balanced budget in the literature for energy would say you can spend 6% on your home energy needs. That's for heating, cooling your home, running your hot water heater, TV, stuff like that. And that's often called the energy cost burden. People who spend more than 6% of their income on energy are considered energy cost burdened. And the total number of dollars they spend beyond that amount is what we call the energy affordability gap. And that's the number that we worked hard to try to quantify. Uh, For Maryland, we found that that sum was about $400 million that people are paying that they don't really have to pay, that they are paying instead of paying for medical expenses or instead of paying for other necessities, they're having to pay these high energy bills or they're not paying and they're being shut off. And what was somewhat uh, surprising was that Maryland is a state with possibly, I think, the highest median income in the country and also not a terribly hard climate to to meet your energy needs. It's not super cold. So this is a nationwide problem that people all over are struggling. And while most of the people in Maryland could afford their energy bills, about 400,000 were burdened. And that's about 20-ish percent of the population, I think. So what we sought to do was think about how could we bring down these energy bills while also 
doing it in a way that'll bring down emissions and make homes healthier and safer. And that usually entails removing fossil fuels from, from the home. And through these interventions that we proposed, we were able to bring down the total gap down to $80 million instead of $400 million. So that's $320 million annually every year that people would not have to pay and that could be invested instead in their local economy. Those are dollars that would be sorely appreciated by these households. Another interesting finding, I guess, was that this problem is quite widespread of energy affordability. A lot of times people think that this is going to be just focused in uh, maybe the urban areas, maybe it's in the rural areas, but in every, practically every census tract inside of Maryland, we found that there are households that, that struggle. And a narrative, though, that we see come up uh, in a number of analyses is that it's often two different stories. One is you have a lot of households in urban areas where there's concentrated poverty and they're struggling to pay their energy bills. And that's one perfect opportunity to try to do some targeted efficiency and weatherization to improve their, to reduce their energy bills. But then you also have these places in the more remote areas in more rural areas where people are paying really high energy bills because they're stuck on these really expensive fuels like heating their home with propane or fuel oil, or they are in these large leaky homes or small but very leaky homes like mobile homes, which is a, a big chunk of the households that were struggling lived in those. So we are uh, interested in finding ways to communicate that you can both bring down these energy bills and their burdens and also make their homes safer and healthier and also uh, reduce emissions through some real intelligent targeted policy. That's great. Yeah, I was very impressed with the charts, graphs, and maps that you guys developed as part of this report. Very. I mean, I'm a visual learner. I'm a visual person. So to see things articulated in ways that uh, clearly demonstrate, especially the heat maps of, uh, you know, poverty and energy burden really, you know, hit home. There was a lot. And um, Arjun, I'd love to get your thoughts on any other findings from the report that really stood out to you. Yeah, 6% is a, is a, you know, it's a threshold. It's, it's sort of a guideline that comes uh, indirectly from the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development. 30% should be spent on housing. And generally, we say 20% of that, 30%. Would be utility bills and 24% would be rent. So that's where it comes from. But, you know, people, there are people at all income levels. When we say low income households, it could be 200% of poverty level, 100% of poverty level, 50%. So the, the lower the income, you know, the energy, energy consumption does not scale with income. So the energy consumption of low income households is not that far from energy consumption of the average household. The average, the average en- energy bill, maybe two, three percent of income for the middle of the income range. But for 10 percent less energy, uh, a household at 50 percent of the poverty level would be paying 30, 40 percent of their income. That's more than they should be paying for all of housing. And at 100% of the poverty level, it could still be 15, 20%. 
these are financial stresses that cause real health problems, real foregoing food and medicine, and real evictions, which are quite large. So the, and one of the big findings was that Maryland has an excellent climate law now. We want to decarbonize the whole energy system by 2045, and then the electricity system by much before that. But we also have a law passed in 2013 that encourages investments in replacing gas pipelines in the name of safety. And that is raising bills. And we found that unless you electrify, to come to, you know, to use the word of your, of your, of your podcast, unless you electrify the Bills of low-income households could literally skyrocket if they get if they're stuck on the gas system and everybody else uh, electrifies. So this was an absolutely huge finding um, that the state's natural gas law, supposed to be for safety, is in serious conflict with the state's climate law, which is more recent. The the gas. A law was passed uh, 10 years ago, and the climate law was passed last year. So I'll tell you a little bit more about that, but that was a big finding. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, effectively, there's there's all this funding and money from the state going into continuing to sustain the gas system and expand it, while at the same time, a separate law that's saying we need to decarbonize and we actually need to be very likely contracting that system. So very much a conflict of uh, where do you where do you go from here, Maryland? How do you how do you rectify that um, disparity? Uh, and and that's a great pivot to the policy solutions that you guys highlight at the end of the report. And I'd love to have you talk about a few of them. There were so many; it was a really rich report. Uh, but love love to have you talk a, a little bit about some of the solutions that you guys uh, identified. Sarah, if I could just follow up. Uh, on the thing that I just said is, so we looked into the safety question. Did the 2013 law actually reduce explosions that seriously injured people and killed people by replacing pipelines? And we found that it didn't seem to make a material difference. Most of the natural gas explosions that killed people, the vast majority of deaths and the vast majority of serious injuries occurred in explosions inside apartment buildings, which are not covered by the law. And uh, the law itself, even though spending billions, is doesn't seem to be visibly making a difference. So we we recommended uh, a serious revision of how safety in natural gas should be approached, and that um, minimizing investments and early electrification of places that neighborhoods that are considered to be unsafe, um, you know, whether where there are a lot of leaks and actually establishing whether there are a lot of leaks, that the whole neighborhoods should be electrified so the natural gas distribution system that was not in such good shape could just be disconnected as a whole. Now, that's easier said than done, but uh, clearly the data indicated that, you know, if you don't want rates to skyrocket, if you want things to be safer, you have to do things differently. So that was a very, very major recommendation. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So 
kind of returning to the title, uh, Integrating Public Health, Equity, and Climate, uh, there are a lot of good solutions that can tackle all three simultaneously uh, without compromising one or the other. Um, you included a list of en enabling considerations and uh, you know you call them critical to ensure that the transition is effective and equitable. So Eunice, can you talk a little bit ab about the these considerations and any other policy solutions that you really want to make sure we highlight today? Yeah, so the policy solutions, the ways, the levers we have to go home by home and reduce energy bills for those who are often left behind because they don't have the capital investments to improve their own home or they don't own their own home. Um, we listed them where there's four, there's efficiency and weatherization, electrification, solar, specifically community solar, and demand response. Um, and all those are powerful programs that can reduce bills for inefficiency and weatherization, for instance, is one that's been known forever, is always worth, is always good. It always pays for itself. It, you should just be sealing up people's homes and replacing their really old, awful appliances with better ones. And that's a obvious solution. An interesting solution that... Uh, we discovered was that electrification can also reduce energy bills. And so electrifying the home, fully electrifying it, so you're using heat pumps to space heat and induction stoves and heat pump clothes dryers, all that. Uh, that by doing that, previously it had been, it's not often described as a way to reduce bills. It's often considered maybe even a luxury. You do it because you want to be greener if your electricity supply is green, or you want to be safer and healthier because you've been reading these studies about gas stoves that are uh, ruining our indoor air, for example. But it turns out in Maryland, especially with IRA funds coming along, uh, that in almost all cases now, it is cost-effective for low-income homes to electrify, that they'll be saving money after they electrify, even the ones that are using somewhat affordable piped natural gas. So there's like there's electrification, there's community solar, which is good for people who don't own their own roofs, and uh, demand response where utilities pay you so that they can switch off your devices when they need uh, a little bit less demand from customers. And all those programs struggle a bit nationwide, though, to get enrollment. So to talk about these enabling considerations, we have a whole list, but they kind of group into a few categories. One is just like making it easy for people to, to sign up and to start these programs. So oftentimes people don't think electrification is going to increase their bills and they want to stick with their gas stove or their they like their gas stove, for example. So you need to have... Um, Community outreach, you need to make it easy. So partner with local community organizations, spread out the education, saying that this is actually really good. You'll bring down your bills. That will, uh, there's all these grants that you can take advantage of. This is how you talk to your landlord to try to get this started if you're a renter. And then making the process super simple where you just fill out a form or two, you just state your income instead of having to prove it. You don't have to fill out giant forms. Making it really easy will help get the people who often don't have the time or capacity because they're uh, stressed in life in other ways, uh, help them be a part of the energy transition and experience all the benefits instead of just leaving it to the people who have the time and the knowledge and capacity to, to take advantage of it all. Um, so anyway, there are many considerations that uh, 
can help accelerate this transition that needs to happen uh, right now because we have the technology and Dana is going to tell us all about heat pump technology. I'm excited to hear about that. We have the technology and the tools now to, to make this happen. And we just need to get it started as soon as possible to experience all the benefits. That's great. Well, and that's a good segue to bring Dana into the conversation because uh, you've been uh, at Mitsubishi for five years. You, like I mentioned, have a very interesting background, um, not just focused on heat pumps, but actual energy efficiency program design in the state of Maine. So tell us a little bit about your career trajectory and your current role uh, as the director of regulatory strategy for Mitsubishi. Thanks, Sarah. Really uh, such a pleasure to be on today and uh, really so interesting to listen uh, to to the conversation so far. Um, just really, you know, fascinating uh, viewpoints and studies, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I, I've been, I have had kind of a strange and interesting path. Uh, you know, I studied philosophy at the University of Chicago and with a focus on sociology and you know, it was after college, I really kind of got into microbrewing <laughs> and uh, and studied at UC Davis and uh, was involved in a couple of different breweries during the 90s uh, before transitioning to some work in the semiconductor industry and getting my MBA and getting into municipal finance. And at the same time, also kind of really kind of opening my eyes to uh, decarbonization at that point in time. I kind of was just reflecting. It's been 20 years now that I've really kind of been focused on this issue. Um, you know, and I was kind of heading out with uh, in this in this uh, field, uh, you know, with uh, solar thermal applications and making solar thermal more accessible to people. Um, but, uh, you know, then the ARA period came along and there were funds, uh, issued to the states for setting up loan programs and, and rebate programs. And so I was afforded the opportunity to join, uh, Efficiency Maine back in 2010. And at that point, it was, you know, kind of a very nascent organization. Um, you know, at that point set aside as a quasi state agency, um, which we all knew was a big deal, but it's really, I, th I think that's one of the things I want to come back to and focus on. Um, but at that point, there really weren't significant rebate programs or loan programs set up in the state of Maine or, or in a lot of places for uh, these kind of decarbonization efforts or, or uh, energy efficiency around uh, advanced electric technologies. So we launched our rebate programs around heat pumps, cold climate heat pumps around uh, 2012, 2013 uh, with some pilot projects. And even in that first year in a state with, you know, about 600,000 homes, we had 3,500 homes uh, engaged in that program. And uh, in the, you know, and I, I was at Efficiency Maine for seven years and it's been more than five years since I left. And in that period of time, you know, well over 100,000 heat pumps have been installed um, you know, representing nearly 20% of all the homes in the state of Maine. And so we, we really, the, the state transitioned from a place where we had virtually no heat pumps, less than one-tenth of a percent of homes with central air conditioning, transitioning to a place where 20% have heat pumps and use them for a substantial portion of their heating displacement. I, I've been heating uh, here in Portland, Maine, uh, my home, uh, uh, you know, for more than eight years. And uh, I can tell you, they, they work. It doesn't matter what kind of crazy conditions are happening outside. I've never had a circumstance where my heat pump turned off or I wasn't able to keep uh, some some very nice degree of comfort in the house. So, um, you know, lots, lots of excitement there. But, you know, to kind of get to some of the conversation and questions we were having, you know, program design is 
um, as much an exercise in psychology and understanding market dynamics as it is in understanding the problem that you're trying to solve in lowering energy burden. You really need to take advantage of the market dynamics to ensure that you get the best uptake and leverage the same sort of mechanisms that are in place. So making heat pumps or weatherization or, you know, whatever energy efficiency measure you're trying to do affordable and attractive. So either through financing and some degree of rebates, but making it so it's very simple. People's time is incredibly important. And so, you know, merging these varied interests between consumers having limited time, having a desire to save money, um, and, and, uh, incorporating that with, you know, uh, the contractors who are trying to put in things that are going to make people happy that they're going to be able to profit from. Um, and that they won't get a lot of callbacks from and, uh, you know, is not totally foreign to the kind of skills that their technicians have. Um, and, and maintaining the cash flow of the entire supply chain along the sides of that. I think one of the downfalls of some of the rebate programs we've seen, especially those that are, that are really exceptionally high rebates is just how long it takes for them to pay out those funds to, uh, contractors. Um, it makes it so that people are generally allergic to the programs. They just can't afford to participate in a program that takes, you know, months to pay them uh, substantial rebates for the kind of work that they've done. They just, they have to pay their suppliers. They have to pay their payroll. Um, so in some ways, smaller incentives that are paid very quickly provide a much greater signal to the marketplace. And, you know, especially where the process is very simple, because when you have smaller rebates, it's not, you know, the program administrators are like, oh, my gosh, you know, we, we don't have to know every detail of the entire thing to the nth degree because we're only supporting a fraction of the of the uh, cost of the overall improvement that that's dramatically uh, beneficial. But, you know, I, I the one one thing I wanted to really come back to that I think is oftentimes missed. And this kind of ties into the previous conversation about the utilities is that efficiency Maine and efficiency Vermont and the energy trust of Oregon. And there's a few other entities like this around the country. They are quasi state agencies that are entirely independent of the utility programs themselves. Utilities that profit from electricity and gas that are put in charge of running utility pro, you know, rebate programs. Are conflicted. You, you can't blame them for that. It's just sort of part of the natural structure. Like I said, it's all about psychology and the way that things are built. And so to a certain degree, if any state has expectations that they're going to decarbonize, but they put the programs in the hands and the operational capabilities of utilities that profit from the sales of gas, it's not going to be terribly surprising to a lot of us that they will be disappointed. Um, so it really... You know, and, and we've seen some movement away from this. Uh, you know, it's like even in Massachusetts and New York in the past year, um, which have extraordinarily large, uh, rebate programs and, and, uh, structures that are really doing everything they can. You know, a lot of committed people trying to make things happen there. The rate of uptake is just so much more costly per unit and at a slower rate per capita than some states like. Maine and Vermont, which have lower cost and simpler programs, that it's having policymakers revisit the decision as to who should run the programs. Um, and they're, they're looking at different options around, um, you know, quasi states or entities that aren't directly tied to revenues from those uh, utility programs. So it's, it's, you know, the whole 
idea of setting up rebate programs is um, it's a science in and of itself. Absolutely. And as I mentioned in the intro, you know, we've got billions of dollars flowing to buildings and efficiency programs and electrification programs now through the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and a lot of these incentives and rebate programs are being uh, funneled to state energy offices and tribal governments and other state agencies. Uh, how do you expect those rebates to impact your work uh, at Mitsubishi? But also, what advice do you have to give to the state energy offices who are going to be the recipients of these dollars and need to pivot pretty quickly to design these programs to meet all of these uh, criteria that you all have laid out today? Yeah, the, 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 the Inflation Reduction Act is really a big deal for the heat pump marketplace. Um, the, the, particularly, particularly the, the tax credits. Um, you know, 30% up to 20%, you know, up to two, I'm sorry, 30% up to $2,000, uh, for eligible equipment is a pretty big deal. So if you, particularly for smaller projects. So if you have a project that's less than $6,700, you're going to get 30% off of that. It's a, very substantial amount. And really, uh, you know, particularly for lower income homes or moderate income homes that are looking to get into this and displace substantial portions of their heating, um, you know, it's plausible to have a project under that cost amount um, be able to put in a one-to-one system in their living room, something that I advocate for all the time. You know, you don't have to leap into heat pumps to get a lot of benefit out of them. Um, you can make a substantial change in your, your energy burden and comfort level in your house just to, with a one-to-one system, one outdoor unit to one indoor unit placed thoughtfully in your main living space. Um, and so that program extends for 10 years. Um, and so, and people can participate from one year to the next uh, for any eligible equipment that they installed in that year. So I think that that's going to have a dramatic uh, impact on the overall marketplace and contribute to an even faster growth of rate of growth for the ductless marketplace, which over the past, you know, five, six years has consistently grown between 20 and 30%. I mean, we've already been in an exceptional growth period um, and it's really just slated to continue. As for the state rebate programs, uh, there's they, they just released some preliminary guidance to the states uh, last week. And, you know, as kind of anticipated, you know, DOE in these programs, not unlike the ARA era, there are things that they must require uh, for the states to participate in order to ensure that the funds are used appropriately um, and and to statute and within guidance of the law. But the states are going to have a ton of, a ton of flexibility in how they administer these programs. And I guess, you know, my suggestion would be, you know, to really focus on trying to help the maximum number of low-income homes and get these measures out there in a simple way uh, with simple installations, don't try and tackle every whole home application and have all kinds of redundancy in your uh, evaluations and all the stuff. Do very simple things through existing channels where you already know who the homes are, where the homes are that have the high energy burden, and focus on trying to do smaller solutions like simpler, you know, one-to-one heat pumps would be an example. And know that like you're going to be able to help some number of thousands of homes in each one of these states. Of course, every state gets a slightly different dollar amount and they're going to have to approach it different ways. But what what that's going to do is not only help all those homes that you're you're immediately impacting, but in effect you're going to train up and build this entire um, you know, infrastructure 
of contractors and, and distributors that are now used to how to treat these homes, what the cost of that is, and it's going to give the state administrators a ton of experience on on what kind of things they want to tackle next and where they're going to find those things. So it's like, even though the rebate dollars that might be available to the states might be exhausted within a relatively short period of time of a few, three, four years, something to that effect, and put a you know, a good boost on the marketplace, specifically for low-income homes, I think that it's going to end up transitioning to a much larger endeavor to continue that work even beyond the availability of federal funds. Yeah, that's the hope, absolutely, is to uh, stimulate the market and um, give it the boost it needs to to get going. Um, just being cognizant of time, man, there's so much I want to dig into with all of you. Uh, it sounds to me like Eunice and Arjun, you have your work cut out for you because we need a Maryland-like study for near all states to inform some of these state energy program offices <laughs> because you guys have such great targeted data and uh, mapping of of you know where the where the ripe opportunities are. Um, any any reflections, Arjun, from you on um, you know how you can apply what you've learned in the Maryland study and what Dana just mentioned uh, to ensure greater success in in all states as this Inflation Reduction Act funding is is rolling out. Well, the problem with energy burden is present throughout the country. Maryland's numbers are actually fairly typical for the country. You know, so many 20% get assistance. There's a pretty big gap. That gap, on average, maybe 10%, 8% above for at poverty level. So the nature of the problem is very similar throughout the country. So, and then, you know, I'll let Jonas tell you about the data because he's the, he's the, guy that did the data. and um, But I think also the policy solutions are along the same lines. The federal funds are available to everybody. So actually, the kind of work that we did, and I hope that we'll publish even more detailed maps than, we, um, than you've seen in, in our report, and that's sort of under discussion, um, that, that it could be extended very, very usefully to the whole country in, in short order because these funds are available and they could be put to very good use. Oh, and I should also say the problem of gas investments um, that are not going anywhere fast is also pretty widespread. You know, natural gas industry wants to, wants to continue to exist and they are mostly regulated and, you know, there's, but there's going to be a problem of standard costs if we go on this way. The cost of the transition will go up and I think one of the messages I'd really like to convey is you don't want to be burdening the economy and rate payers with unnecessary expenses. We do want to make things safer. So on that count, also extending the work we did in Maryland nationally would be very important. Saving people money from unneeded investments. Absolutely. Eunice? Yeah, and just to add on to that, there what I find really interesting is where the policies do differ geographically, uh, where like in some places it's just plainly obvious you should have solar. Everybody should have solar. It's, it's so sunny and like the time you need energy is when the sun's out. Um, similarly with electrification, there are places where it is, uh, where the price of electricity is cheap enough and other options are more expensive that we should more rapidly be electrifying homes there while, for instance, we did a analysis for a utility 
for sponsored utility plan in Michigan. And their electrification was, if you did a whole home electrification compared to one that used efficient natural gas appliances, it was going to be increasing their bills. So thinking about uh, that and how things are going to change into the future and how rates are likely to change and how grid resources are going to change, I think that's going to be really interesting to do a whole nation, which we're uh, trying to get underway soon. Fingers crossed. Great. So stay tuned. It sounds like more more good research mm-hmm. coming out of your shop. Um, I want to return quickly towards the end of the show to the workforce question because it always comes up and you know, we have a known shortage of electricians right now. We know that there are already uh, strains on the uh, contractor workforce across the board just because of high demand. Um, but having a qualified and trusted workforce is absolutely critical to ensuring consumers have a positive experience, like you said, Dana. So uh, just I'd love to get your thoughts on what states can really do to help motivate the existing work- workforce to really step up to the task to electrify and improve the efficiency of the building stock. Given that we have incentives, we have rebates, including some focused at the contractor themselves. Um, what are your insights coming from the trade? Uh, you know, I mean, there's no doubt that the, the trades, uh, you know, contractors are oftentimes looking to hire people and bring them on board. And, you know, and sometimes there's difficulty in, in trying to fill out the, insta- the staff entirely and, and, uh, training can become an issue. You know, all the manufacturers of the equipment provide training, have training centers, online training materials. Um, there are existing pathways through community colleges and trade schools um, in, in different states. You know, I think probably one of the, the fastest ways to increase uptake uh, is really, you know, for increased wages for these different uh, positions associated with heat pumps or other electrification measures. And the way that that happens is if the people that own these companies or or starting these companies are driven to do so because they can make money from it and there's demand from consumers. And so like with the idea of everybody kind of staying in their lane and doing what they do best, one of the key components of a successful state program or, or advocacy is to really just encourage homeowners to pursue heat pumps and to to and other measures because you know if a contractor answers the phone or his staff answer the phone and three times a day they're asking for ductless heat pumps they won't be wanting to say no for very long <laughs> so you know the, that we and we've seen that transformative factor in places where it really took off i mean you know like the main is is a perfect example you know we had we started from near to nothing and there were only a handful of heat pump installers in the state. And now there are more than 700 installers, uh, different separate companies in a, in a state with 1.3 million people. And, um, we have installers that put in thousands of heat pumps every year and it's all they do. Um, you know, each, each doing a thousand heat pumps, you know, or two or 3000. So it's, it's, uh, it, that kind of transformation happens. Um, with with dollars and having training available you know through standard mechanisms making sure that the community colleges and the trade schools have the latest equipment you know if you're sending people to these trade schools whether they're high school or college age and the equipment that they're working on is from the 80s it's not particularly helpful um and so you know providing funding to these school programs to update their equipment 
um, and, and make it part of their curriculum, I think is, is sort of the thing that the states can do outside of just direct messaging to consumers to drive demand. Great recommendations. And absolutely, we must continue to support the community colleges out there, the trade associations that are supporting uh, trade development and training. Um, it's a huge part of the overall puzzle. So um, great, great point to make here at the end of the show. Um, I'd like to invite each of you to provide any final thoughts or takeaways for our listeners. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Like I said, I could keep going for another two hours and you'll probably be getting calls from me here in a not too distant future when I dig in further on these uh, great research and program design ideas. But um, Eunice, I'll start with you. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Thanks for having me. Uh, final thoughts? I suppose if listeners are curious, they should uh, look at some of the research we put out, PSE Healthy Energy, or look into some of the costs and benefits that go along with uh, owning gas appliances and look towards the future and think about what they want their home to look like five or 10 years from now and what they want to be relying on. Uh, and hopefully, if they have any questions, can email me. Awesome. We will definitely be putting uh, the research that we talked about today as well as some other links in our show notes so folks can find them easily there. And we'll go ahead and put your email in there too, Eunice. I'm just kidding. But folks can track you down, I'm sure, pretty easily. Um, Great. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Arjun, how about you? Yeah. One of the most important things is to break down the wall between energy assistance, which is looked at as charity, you know, somehow, you know, and there's not a lot of political will for it, and um, the energy transition. The thing is, it's not just low-income people who suffer from high energy burdens, you know, the lack of medicines, of food, and ill health, and all that. There's a cost to society, too. When people get evicted, you know, they wind up uh, needing extra emergency room care. It's tens of thousands of dollars every time that happens to non-low-income people. So... It's very essential to make sure there's enough assistance money, and that can be quite large. As Yona said, our estimate was $400 million, and the available money in Maryland is $120 million, so there's a pretty big gap there. But what happens when you break down that wall is initially you need a lot of money, but eventually when it's all done, you need less assistance money than what we have available today. So actually, you accomplish the goals of the fiscal conservatives who say, you know, we should be, you know, people should make it on their own, your own bootstraps and all that. The energy transition can do that if we do it right, but also have assistance money. We need to change that mindset that assistance and the energy transition are two boxes. They're not. They should be in the same box. Yeah, really excellent point. And uh, there's so many comprehensive steps that we can be taking, as you pointed out throughout the show, that uh, help people reduce energy bills long-term. There's that near-term assistance that's critical, but long-term we can uh, change that paradigm for sure. Uh, Dana, I'll give you the the final word, your final thoughts for the show. 
All right. This has been a great show. I, so I really, I, I'm going to keep it very as brief as I can. I really kind of have like two, I have the necessary sort of Mitsubishi plug. You know, we have an entire network of distributors and diamond contractors all across the country that are anxious to help people uh, figure out how to make programs work and to get heat pumps installed with uh, absolute best practices. So like, it's not like we don't have the expertise around the country. We have it. It's in place. Um, don't hesitate to reach out to us or, you know, other manufacturers that are in the area that are all also equally uh, keen to, to, uh, to assist in this. The second thing I just wanted to point out is I've done a lot of plugging for uh, Efficiency Maine, but their website, efficiencymain.com, has all the documentation transparent on how to run the program. So if there are any state administrators or state advocates that are looking like, how do we do all this? Like, if you go to the Efficiency Main website and you look at the registered forms, you print out the one-page PDF checklists and the rebate form, and you look at their locator tool and you look at their library documents, you're going to get the framework of the program that has basically been unchanged. I mean, some slight changes around the edges happening all the time, but it's more or less the same structure that's been in place for 10 years and has delivered an incredible level of success. And so, I, like, all the keys to the castle are right there, and I'd encourage people to look at it, even if you're going to make some changes, because it's it's uh, very instructive. I love that, and I love that the program prioritized sharing that information to help others do it uh, successfully and learn from what's worked. Um, that's really, as I see it, how uh, the Inflation Reduction Act rebates and the programs that are going to be rolling out uh, very soon and available for the next decade are going to be successful is if there's uniformity, uh, there's you know building on what we know works and avoiding the uh, pitfalls from programs that haven't worked so well. So uh, thank you for being a leader in Maine on that, Dana, and for sharing your insights there. Um, well, this has been a great conversation, really, as I've said, thoroughly enjoyed speaking with each of you and uh, really appreciate all the work you are doing in your respective fields. So with that, we will wrap up. I will bid you all adieu. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovation is a nonpartisan energy policy firm delivering high-quality research and analysis to help policymakers and regulators pursue a decarbonized energy future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and the podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. Please continue to subscribe, follow, and give us a review if you like what you're hearing. It helps us expand our reach and impact and uh, helps us get out in the world. Thanks, as always, to our sound engineer, Rowan Stigner, and the Audio Inn in Salt Lake City. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to electrify this. Thank you.